Now, have you ever had the experience, which I seem to have quite often, of getting a song stuck in your head? <laughs> you get a song stuck in your head, and it won't go away. Now, my older sister, Catherine, swears if you will sing the Sesame Street theme song, it will drive the song out of your head. But then you're stuck with Sesame Street. So it's kind of like, hey, <laughs> um, I, I, it, it, it frustrates me. I have also noticed I can even go to sleep with a song in my head and I will wake up six hours later, with the same song in my head. I've just always wondered, did it like play all night? <laughs> or when I went unconscious, did it just hit the pause button and start right back up when I woke up at the same place? I don't know. But I did a little internet work on this. They have lots of different names for it, but it's basically an earworm is what they call it. An earworm. Now that sounds kind of gross, but it's really helpful because if you happen to get stuck in your head one of Cher's songs, then it could be a sheer worm. Okay. Anyway, anyway, I don't know if any of y'all are part of the 188 million people who have listened to this song on YouTube. But my daughter, Rebecca, has introduced me to it, and it is driving me crazy. What does the fuck say? So, uh, that's going to be stuck in your head. For the duration of this class, I can tell you that occasionally, instead I get something good in my head, uh, uh, one of the, the Sunday morning songs that will frequently come into my brain is a John Michael Talbot song, Come Worship the Lord, for we are his people, the flock that he shepherds. Hallelujah. And it's a wonderful song that to have in your head as you're coming to worship. Um, uh, there are certain worship songs that, that just seem to, to fit the moment that I'll sing in anticipation of church. I don't think we're the first generation to have earworms or to have songs that we sing for occasions. In fact, I know we're not. And I love sometimes to think of Paul and wonder what songs he might have had in his head. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he told them to sing and admonish one another with songs, psalms, and spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Three different types of, of song material. The psalms are the Old Testament psalms. Paul recognized the role and sang those Old Testament psalms himself as part of his worship. As we go through the class today, what's very important for me and my heart to convey to you is that we're not simply reading a Bible story, but that in the Bible we have true history that involves real people like you and like me. And Paul was a real person. And he dealt with real people. And he had real attitudes and real uh, approaches. And he sang songs. And so I really, really like that. Now, we left off the week before last. We left off with the Paul 
going to the temple. He's returned from being on mission for several years. And he's returned to Jerusalem. And he goes to the temple to have his hair cut in, in, in completion of his Nazarite vow. And offer a sacrifice. Paul goes to the temple and I can't help but think that perhaps in his mind were one of the temple songs because there were specific psalms that had been written for people to sing as they go to the temple. It's not what does the fox say, but it's not only catchy, it's, it's one of my favorite psalms. It's Psalm 84. And I have no clue if this was in Paul's mind. But I know he knew the Psalms. I know he quotes them right and left in all of his letters. I know he told the Ephesians to sing them to one another. Here's Psalm 84. I've put it on the the overhead for us. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. See, it's a temple song. And and the, the Jews considered the temple an earthly representation of God's dwelling among men. So how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yea, faints for the courts of the Lord. Those are the courts that surround inside the colonnade. My soul longs, yea, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And, and of course, this is a model that's been rebuilt that I'm showing in the PowerPoint. But the original is outside, and you bet they had sparrows and they had birds that, that, that made nests. And, and, and the psalmist sees that, and Paul would see that. Even the sparrow and the swallow find a place where she can lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Not just this song, but blessed are the people who come and worship and sing and and bow down and praise you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Underline that. Blessed are the people whose strength is in you, not in me, not in my family, not in my social network, not in my career path, not in what I have, but my strength I want to be in God. Blessed is, are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. My whole heart is just a highway to, to God. It's, it's, it's on the road. That's what the psalmist says. These people, the psalmist said, as they go through the valley of Baha, they make it a place of springs. Now you're thinking, well, I've never been to the Valley of Baca. Yes, you have. If you know that Baca is Hebrew for tears. So the people whose strength is in the Lord, when they go through the time of life that's tearful and woeful and sorrowful and, and, and hurting, those tears become a place of springs. They become those early rains that, that, that the pools that, that feed and that nourish and that sustain life. The person whose strength is in God, whose heart's a highway to God, is a person who even in the times of misery, the valley of tears, will find those tears nourishing life. Sustaining life from God. They go from strength to strength till each one appears before Zion. 
O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the nicest tents there are. Or in the tents of wickedness. I would rather be a doorkeeper. For the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now what a psalm for Paul to be singing. He's headed to the temple. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. What a song. I wonder if he had a clue what kind of day he was in for. We touched on it last week. A week before last. But Paul's there and he's immediately accosted. And a riot ensues. Uh, ensues and they begin to, to, to basically work toward taking his life when the Roman guard intervenes. Now to understand the intervention, you need to see that, the Antonia Fortress in the corner. The Antonia Fortress is where the Roman garrisons and guards were kept. It was named in honor of Mark Antony. It had been built by Herod in like 35 B.C. or something when he started it. But that's where the Romans kept their barracks. That's where the Roman guards were. They had a really good view into what was going on in the courts from there. So they're looking down into the courts and they see the, the riot ensues and the centurion and his soldiers, they get Paul out of there. And they bring Paul in front of the the uh, the uh, uh, tribune, who's the head guy for Rome's military. And the tribune at first orders Paul to be beaten. Finds out Paul's a citizen, so Paul's life is spared from the beating. Not a gentle beating either. The Roman scourging. Killed many people. So Paul, on a day that starts out with him headed to the temple to worship the Lord. His day's just gone upside down. His life's been been spared because the Roman soldiers have intervened only for them to beat him. Paul impledes the tribune and says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't beat me. Legally. Tribune says, time out. They have a little discussion about that. This is that same time where Paul says, can I address the crowd? The Roman, the, the, the Roman centurion says, uh, hey, you speak Hebrew? Or Greek, excuse me. You speak Greek? Paul says, uh, yeah, I speak Greek. And the, the Tribune says, I thought you were the Egyptian. That Egyptian that's been causing trouble. Paul says, no, I'm not an Egyptian. He says, I'd like to address the crowd. The tribune says, okay. So Paul begins to address the crowd. It just results in more, more turmoil, more trouble. Paul goes before the council. Now we're on to the next day, which may be that evening, because the Jewish day started in the evening. Paul goes before the council because the tribune's trying to figure out why Paul's in all this trouble. Why do they want to kill him? Paul looks at that council intently is the way Luke says it. Luke says Paul looked at the council intently. And that meeting goes nowhere. It's the one where the chief priest orders Paul struck. Paul curses the chief priest, then apologizes for it. Real man. 
trying his best in a situation that's gone totally south from a worldly perspective. So with that, Paul kind of uh, hits upon an idea. He tells the, the council, the Sanhedrin, he says, you know, the real reason I'm here is because I'm a Pharisee and I believe in the resurrection from the dead. Well, the Sadducees don't believe in that. And they're in the council too. And that's just like taking a match and throwing it into a, a gas can. It's just like... So they start, the, 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 the Pharisees and the Sadducees start fighting over whether or not there could be a resurrection. You have some interesting comments from some of the Pharisees in this. Some of the Pharisees say, hey, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel did speak to him? We know some of the Pharisees were, or some of the Sanhedrin became believers. Nicodemus. So, that night, Paul is taken at the end of what we would call a long, hard day. But at the end of, it's the start of a next day for the Jews, because their day starts when the sun goes down. But think of it, that night, Paul's then taken to the barracks. He's taken to the Antonia Fortress, where he's held. And... Uh, an angel appears to him. The Lord appears to him. The Lord says, take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now, there were a group of Jews that were zealots. They were very, um, uh, uh, the Sakari, they were called. They, they would, they, they were, I don't, I don't know the right word for it. Think of a bunch of people who would just do just about anything and use violent means to accomplish what they considered to be holy. So these zealots take a vow, about 40 of them. We're not going to eat or drink till we kill Paul or someone else does. You know, it's reprehensible what some people will do in the name of piety. It's like the the... the the, the, the terrorists that flew the airplanes into the towers thinking they were doing something pious when all they were doing was something reprehensibly evil. So these, these men take an oath that they will neither eat or drink until they've killed Paul. Luke doesn't know the exact number, but he says it's more than 40 that have taken this oath. And, and the word is out because Paul's sister's son, Paul's nephew, the son of Paul's sister. This is the boy who would call him Uncle Paul. Paul these are real people. This right, I got nephews. And one of the nephews, one of the sons of his sister, comes to Paul in the barracks and tells Paul, these guys are for real. They've taken an oath to kill you. And and Paul, it takes it serious enough. And the, and the boy's information, I say, boy, you had to be at least 12 to pull this off for your testimony to be considered valid as a Jew. So the boy's probably older than 12. But this teenager, let's say, has credible enough information to where Paul says, go straight to the tribune, you tell the tribune you've got a message for him, and tell the tribune what you've just told me. And so the young man does. The young man goes to the tribune after, let's go to the Elmo for a moment. So, Paul calls one of the centurions and says to him, take this young man to the tribune. He has something to tell him. So the centurion took Paul's nephew and brought him to the tribune. And the nephew said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to, or this is the, the centurion. Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. 
The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what do you have to say? Now, we don't know what was going on, but this is a tribune who almost had Paul flogged, who came very close to crossing a line that would have gotten the tribune in serious trouble. And I almost wonder if that had not happened and the tribune had not had the interactions with Paul that flowed from that, would the tribune have cared a whit what Paul's, this prisoner, nephew has to say. The circumstances that Luke fills in provide a nice fabric for understanding the human behavior. Now, what do you have to tell me? You know, is Paul mad? Is he going to sue me? Is he called the Lanier Law Firm? (laughs) The nephew said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But don't be persuaded. More than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him. They've bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they've killed him. Now they're ready, waiting for your consent. The tribune dismisses the young man. And he charges him, tells him, Don't you tell anyone that you've told me about these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride. Bring him safely to Felix the governor. And then he writes a letter for Felix the governor. Whoops, I'm sorry. I got carried away. Now you may be saying, that's a lot of manpower just for Paul. They're journeying at night. It's not the safest time to travel. So Claudius writes this letter to the governor, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and I rescued him because I learned he was a Roman citizen. Well, that's a letter that's not really an accurate rendition of the truth. That's kind of a cover your fanny letter. Okay, I mean, that's just he's kind of like protecting his backside because that's not the way it went down. But that's pretty human. Desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. When it was disclosed to me there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers take Paul. They brought him by night to Antipatris. On the next day, they returned to the barracks and just let the horsemen go on from there. When he'd come to Caesarea, he delivered the letter to the governor. They presented Paul before him. The governor, Felix, read the letter, asked what province Paul was from. When he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. After five days... The high priest Ananias came down with soldiers, or with elders, excuse me, and a spokesman, one Tertullus, Tertullus the lawyer. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. When they had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, now we're going to pause for a moment and go back to the PowerPoint, because we've got to understand how this went down. And not just one, but several people in here seem to like maps. So here's our map. Jerusalem. This is where the ruckus happens. And Paul's taken from the fortress. And in the dark of the night, they make the first journey to Antipatris. It's about 30 miles away. It's not a short journey. It took was an all-night ride. Next day, the foot soldiers go back. The rest of them take him on in the next day to Cappadocia. No, not Cappadocia. Caesarea, excuse me. 
And in Caesarea, he gets in front of Governor Felix. Felix reads the letter. Boom. Now, I want to take a diversion for a moment, and I want to talk about Felix. Because these, like I say, are real people. And most of us spend time in the Bible. I assume you've got a Bible. How many of you, though, spend time reading ancient Roman history? Okay, there are three of us. If you read ancient Roman history, you learn about these people. If not, if you just go to Google and you Google Felix, well, there's no telling what you're going to come up with. But if instead of going to Google, you read your Roman history, you'll learn that Governor Marcus Antonius Felix was actually the governor until 58 A.D., This happened around 57 A.D. And we can read about him. We can read about his three wives. His first wife's name was Drusilla. Drusilla was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. Now, Felix divorced Drusilla. Because he found another babe he wanted to marry. It was convenient. It didn't mess up any of their monogrammed towels or anything because her name was also Drusilla. (laughs) This Drusilla died in the Vesuvius volcano eruption. This Drusilla was one of Herod's daughters. Agrippa. Herod Agrippa's granddaughter, I guess it would make. This Drusilla was Jewish. Hey, and after she died, he married someone else, but we don't know her name. Not much about her anyway. So, what do we know about Felix, other than the fact that he had these wives? Well, we can read the Roman historian Tacitus, who wrote not long after, 50 years later. And when he's writing about this time period, if we go to the Elmo, and and I bother to bring the books to show you this, because I really want you to see, this is not just a Bible story. This is something that happened. There was a day, this was a current event. The princes now being dead or reduced to insignificance, Claudius, Emperor Claudius, made Judea a province and entrusted it to Roman knights or to freedmen. One of the latter, Antonius Felix, practiced every kind of cruelty, And lust. Oh, come back. Wielding the power of a king with all the instincts of a slave. That, by the way, is a a put down. He had married Drusilla, the granddaughter of Cleopatra and Antony, and so was Antony's grandson-in-law. While Claudius was Antony's grandson. That's how he got the appointment. Felix uh, Tacitus doesn't tell us about the divorce. We'll read about that from Josephus. But if we go back to the Elmo for a mo- I mean to the PowerPoint for a moment, this is what we learned. This is a fellow who practiced every kind of cruelty and lust. Now maybe Tacitus is exaggerating, but you read about what this man did, and I don't think he is. This is the man Paul's in front of. Luke doesn't tell us he's that type of a person. Luke just tells us he wants a bribe from Paul. But, meanwhile, back at the temple. Oh, no, no, no. Let's don't go back to the temple yet. Let's go back to the Elmo. Let me tell you what Josephus says. Josephus gives us some things that had been happening at the temple and in Uh, uh, Jerusalem at the time. Now, remember, Josephus is a Jewish historian 
who's alive during this period. Josephus becomes a Jewish general in the rebellion that starts in 68 AD. Not a general, a commander, we'll call him. And Josephus, when the Roman rebellion, Romans stopped the rebellion and they raised Jerusalem to the ground, the temple, Josephus basically becomes a Roman and says, okay, I'm on your side now. And proceeds to write histories of his people from Rome so that the Romans could better understand Jewish history. So this is a book he wrote called Jewish Antiquities. And in Jewish Antiquities, he, uh, uh, he is writing, Josephus is writing, about Felix. Um, Caesar dispatched Felix as procurator of Judea, or governor. Think of governor when you see procurator. Felix accordingly devised a pretext that would remove from his presence one who was a constant nuisance to him. That was a high priest named Jonathan. Um, it was such reasons that moved Felix to bribe Jonathan's most trusted friend, a native of Jerusalem named Doris, with a promise to pay a great sum to bring in thugs. Brigands is an old word for thugs. To attack Jonathan and kill him. Doris agreed, contrived with to get him murdered by the brigands in the following way. Certain of the brigands went up to the city as if they intended to worship God. Sound like Paul? Except for being a thug, that's what Paul did. With daggers concealed under their clothes, they mingled with the people about Jonathan and assassinated him. As the murder remained unpunished, from that time forth, the brigands, the thugs, with perfect impunity, which means nobody's touching them, used to go into the city during the festivals. And that's when Paul had just been there. And with their weapons similarly concealed, mingle with the crowds. In this way, they slew some because they were private enemies, others because they were just paid to do it. They committed these murders not only in other parts of the cities, but even in some cases in the temple. For there too they made bold to slaughter their victims. They didn't regard this even as a desecration. He goes on to talk about it. He says, uh, look at this. Uh, uh, what, what Josephus says is, he says, I think this is why God allowed the Romans to take out Jerusalem and to conquer us. But anyway, he continues the explanation of the events. With such pollution did the deeds of the brigands, the thugs, infect the city. Moreover, imposters and deceivers called upon the mob to follow them into the desert. They said they'd show them unmistakable marvels and signs that would be wrought in harmony with God's design. Many were, in fact, persuaded and paid the penalty for their folly. For, look at this. They were brought before Felix, and he punished them. At this time, there came to Jerusalem from Egypt a man who declared he was a prophet and advised the masses of the common people to go out with him to the Mount of Olives, which lie opposite the city at a distance of five furlongs. They went out there. In fact, Felix sends an army and finally catches 400 of, uh, of, I think he captures 200, but he kills like 400 of the followers of the Egyptian. This is the Egyptian that the Tribune thought was Paul. This is, this is what's going on. This is the historical atmosphere. You've got these thugs who are putting daggers in their, their cloaks and going in in the festivals and killing people. Now with that background where Felix has been putting those thugs to death or using them depending on what he needed. In comes Paul before Felix. The accusers come five days later. Typically a three day journey. So they had two days to get their case together. Go back to the Elmo, please. Here, come the, 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 here comes the lawyer and the priest. The lawyer begins. 
Speaking to Felix. Now, you know who Felix is. We've been reading about Felix. We've been reading about his behavior. We know what he's doing. Look what the lawyer comes. The lawyer comes with his slick lawyer words. And hey, I'm allowed to say that. The lawyer comes with his slick lawyer words. And he starts by buttering up the judge. And after he butters up the judge, he doesn't, he, he doesn't come right out and say it. But he's basically saying, Paul's the ringleader of all of the thugs. Paul's the one who's been causing all this trouble for the last multiple years. Look at it. Here's the buttering up first. Oh, Governor Felix. Since through you we enjoy much peace. Peace? Well, through the governor because he's quick to put to death the thugs. See, this is a very subtle compliment, Judge, because of your decisive hand in dealing with thuggery. We've been finding a measure of peace in Jerusalem all because of you. Because you're not hesitant to crucify, which is how Felix would kill them. To crucify the thugs that are disruptive. Since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. You're, you're changing the course of our history. In every way. In everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. I mean, if I'm on the other side, I'd start puking. I'd just be saying, give me a break. I got to tell you, I'm in courtrooms a whole lot more than I'm in here. And when lawyers start doing this stuff, you just sit there and say, oh, come on. Because you're going to get your chance, hopefully, in America you do, to stand up and say, with all due respect, aside from all his buttering up, can I just tell you the truth? To detain you no further, Governor Felix, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. We have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews. He's the instigator of the thugs. Throughout the world, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. But we seized him. And by examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accused him. At this point, the Jews who came with him were all, yeah, 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 yeah that's right, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, the governor nodded for Paul to speak. And Paul replied. I got to tell you, I'd have so given Paul a job. That guy would have been a great lawyer. Look at this. This is just, this is just so cool. Paul doesn't do the little flattery stuff, but... He's just really smart. <laughs> okay, look at this. Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, I think Brother Paul knew his Latin pretty well. Could have been doing this in Latin. We don't know. But do you know what the word for cheerful is in Latin? It comes from the same root as Felix. <laughs> Felix means cheerful. We get felicity from it today. Okay? So Paul said, knowing for many years you, Felix, have been judged, I with Felixness make my defense. <laughs> These guys want to say, that I've been 
causing all this rabble-rousing for the last umpteen years? Listen, you can verify. I only got to Jerusalem 12 days ago. I hadn't been here long enough to... I, I can't be that guy. I can't be the leader of the brigands, the thugs. That's not me. I got here 12 days ago. This is real easy to check. Look at the ship manifest. We're in Caesarea. This is where I came before I went to Jerusalem. I'll give you a list of people in this very town who can verify I got off the ship in that harbor. I stayed here until I went there. And they didn't find me disputing with anyone. They didn't find me stirring up a crowd in the temple, in the synagogues, in the city. They can't prove to you what they bring up. But, this I confess to you. According to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. After several years, I came to bring alms to my nation. I came to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia... And they ought to be here before you. They ought to be the ones making an accusation if they've got anything against me. Or else let this, these men themselves say what wrongdoing they've found when I stood before the council. Other than this, I did cry out while standing among them, it's respect, with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. Now Felix is married to whom? 66% of the time you'll be right saying Drusilla. The Judean Drusilla. So this Roman governor has a Jewish wife. And Luke says it this way. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty. None of his friends should be prevented from attending to his knees. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, that's Luke's polite, subtle way of saying what Tacitus said about, maybe that was a problem with this uh, governor. And the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. Desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So for two years, Paul is there. Until about 58 or so A.D., 58 to 59 A.D. Now, that's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable story, but it's really remarkable history. Here you have Paul, real man. And by God's provision, through all of these little nooks and crannies, whether it's the tribune who's seeking to have Paul chained and scourged and beat and whipped, only to recoil when he hears Paul's a Roman citizen and start buddying up with Paul a little bit. Which causes him to listen to the murder plot. Which causes him to go to extremes to get Paul out of there. And Paul at the right time goes to Caesarea. That's where he's sent. To the place where Paul had been 12 days before. So he's got the witnesses. 
And when he's charged by the governor and all of the, 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 the establishment of Jerusalem comes in to try and get him in trouble, Paul's able to very precisely speak to a governor who through his second wife already has a pretty good understanding of Christianity. It's an amazing set of events, and I just love this story. So with that, your points for home. I don't know why this passage jumps out at me so much, but Acts 23.35 is where Felix tells Paul, I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. Now the accusers are five days from arriving. I hate to wait. Can you imagine for five days having to wait to see if you're going to get killed? Now, God said he'd protect you, and you've got faith, and you're wondering if you're going to be killed anyway. And I wonder there if Paul was working through that song out of Isaiah. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. I don't like to wait, but it's something I have to ask the Lord to teach me to do. Because there are some things I want God to do, and I want him to do them right now. I think there are things in his will. And I'd like them done right now. And he seems to have his own timing. And not mine. And I'm trying to involve my heart in waiting. I'm trying to say, okay, teach me, Lord, to wait. Down upon my knees until in your good time you'll answer these prayers. Ah, it's tough. Um, whoops, that was interesting. When the governor had needed, had nodded for Paul to speak, Paul replied. I like that. There is a time to speak. There is a time to have a message. There's something that needs to be said. And there's a time, you know, Lord, teach me to wait. But I also want the Lord to teach me to speak. I don't want... Listen, if I could, I would ask several of you to loan me yesterday. Blake, you're a young kid. you got lots of days probably in front of you. Can I have your yesterday? But Blake doesn't have it to give to me, though he would if he did, I suspect. Because we can't go back and grab yesterday. Can't do it. I don't have a rewind button. Neither do you. We have opportunities to speak. Our words are things that can build up. Our words are things that can tear down. I want the Lord to take this mouth and turn it into something that will speak his message insightfully into the time and the place. Not because, and uh, you know, don't get me wrong. God could be the ventriloquist if he wanted to and just put his hand back behind here and start pulling my little string and I'd go while he talked. But generally what God's doing, according to Paul in Romans, is renewing our minds. He's involving our will. He's letting us choose to be his voice. He's letting us choose to speak his message. How can I choose to speak his message if I don't know his message? I want to be prepared to speak and I want to speak. And that's my request of God as well. Last point for home. Take courage. You know, hardly a day goes by that Becky doesn't ask me toward the end of the day, whether I'm in town 
or whether I'm out of town and we're talking by phone. How was your day? Man, Paul had a sorry day. (laughs) I mean, you wake up, think you're headed to church, going to have some worship, going to be back in the temple for the first time in two years. It's where you trained. It was your school. You're going to the alma mater, going to see some friends, going to see some enemies, going to see what people are like, see how things have changed, get a chance. Oh, how I'd rather be one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And you get there and Bam! Down it comes. The scuffling, it wasn't uh, uh, 21st century America. Uh, okay, Paul, put your hands up. You're under arrest. No. This is slamming him down, kicking him, ripping his clothes, beating on him, spitting on him, getting rescued from a riotous mob only to be chained by the Romans. Only to have a plot for his life. How was your day today, Paul? Take courage. God's got it all under control. Pray with me, please. Lord, I pray that we can understand more fully as we live our lives, that you have been active and involved in the lives of our Bible heroes and others through the centuries. And we're not reading Bible stories only, but we're reading accurate historical accounts of your hand in history and in the lives of our forefathers in the faith. Father, we just bless you for for Paul, for Luke, and for all of those people that you put out there who walked this walk that we get to read about these centuries later. And Lord, don't ever let us think that this is anything less than your holy word for us, demonstrating your love, your compassion, but also your faithfulness, your foresight, Because, Lord, we want you to to teach us to wait with patience, but also teach us to speak and to speak out loud and to speak your voice. Would you instill in those who need it courage for their days? We bless you through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, whom we await. Amen. Amen.